Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tingsa. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out. The kind that both employees and customers love and support. Today's guest, Gina Gardner, is the force of nature, and you will soon find out why. She's a national TV commentator, author of seven books, and also a radio host. She has decades of experience in developing leaders through her business that helps SME business owners to lead with compassion, which reduces conflict, stress, and overwhelm. That means they can have better relationships with their teams, and the outcomes are more productivity and a profitable business. Gina and I talked about her amazing story of running one of England's most successful schools to developing her own leadership program, Enlightened Leadership. What leadership skills there is needed more than ever in the new now. She gives her top advice on how you can achieve better results as a leader through better relationships. You're in for some amazing insights on how to boost performance in your own life, team and organization. Grab pen and notebook and enjoy. Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast. Today we are the 1st of May and we're still uh, living in, you know, lockdown mode. A couple of weeks ago, I connected with a person over LinkedIn that's called Gina. And Gina and I found out very quickly in the conversation that we had similar views on the world and mindset about how it should work. And we had a big passion for leadership. So I decided that Gina and I, we really needed to have a chat because Gina has a great story to share with you guys. So Gina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on here. I'm very, very pleased to be here. Can you give a bit of a, you know, your your short story about where you came from and how you got involved in what you're doing today and give people a bit more insight into especially what you are doing right now around enlightenment leadership? My background is that I started my professional life as a teacher. I loved it and I was promoted very quickly to become the deputy of a large junior school when I was 28. And I was promoted to be the catalyst for change. And to start with, I I worked with the head and was very pleased to get to the February half term. We'd you know, worked really hard for six months and I went off skiing. And in those days, having longer skis was the fashion. And so I'd got new skis and proceeded to spend most of the week wrapping the extra 10 centimetres around my neck. On the Thursday, I had a bad fall. And so on the Friday, I said to my friends, I'm not coming with you. I'm just going to go off and ski. To cut a long story short, I met them at lunchtime. They'd found, they said, a, a great run and they invited me to come and join them. But they took a wrong turning and we ended up on the Schindlergratz, which is the most difficult back run in St Anton. I'd skied black runs before, but this was a monster. It was full of huge moguls, which are big pieces of, of ice that had been cut out of, by the weather. Managed to ski about the first third, then I had a fall, and it took me about 20 minutes to get down to them, ski down, once I'd retrieved my ski. Each of us was sitting on a mogul, rather like a, an elf sitting on a mushroom. It was a hot day, and my mogul gave way, and I fell I'm told, between 150 and 200 feet. Now, I don't want to dwell on that, but five weeks later, I managed to get back to school and I was skiing with the Borough Ski Party in Switzerland, but became more and more like Quasimodo as the week went on. And on the last evening, I said to my colleagues, I've got to go and lie down. And I suddenly found myself to be paralysed down my left-hand side. It took me a while before I was flown home and then I got back to school finally in May and thought by the time the summer holidays came, now's the time I can recover. 
10 days into the holiday, I got a phone call very, very early morning from my head teacher's wife. She was hysterical. She'd found him dead in bed. He'd had a huge heart attack. And so I literally became the head then. And then four months later, I was I was appointed to be the permanent head. And I was determined that I was going to make a good job of it and that how I was physically wasn't going to get in the way. I was the head for over 20 years. During that time, my mobility deteriorated and I ran my school very much from a wheelchair. I had two failed back surgeries. But the gift in all of that, and there was a huge gift, was that I developed a way of empowering people to take radical responsibility for their own performance and a shared responsibility for the performance of the whole team. And as a result, the school was incredibly successful. We were one of the first Beacon schools and we worked with hundreds of other teachers and dozens of other schools and we also were on the best 100 schools Her Majesty's Inspectors list of 100 best schools in England twice during my tenure. Now during my headship I also worked for the National College of School Leadership as a trainer facilitator, I worked for as an advisor for the government, workforce reform advisor and I worked for the London Institute. Not all at the same time but I did that mainly because our budget was so dire and it meant that we could do the technology and special needs that we wanted but it also helped to keep us at cutting edge. I used work as a way to manage pain really and, and regularly did a 15 hour day and in 2000 2004, I was given an ultimatum by my neurologist that if I carried on working in the way I was, I would be housebound. And I have to tell you that daytime television just doesn't do it for me. In fact, after one of the operations, I was back at school four days later. If I stayed at home, I couldn't make a cup of tea or coffee if somebody hadn't filled the kettle and left a cup out. And I could read or watch TV. Or I could go to school, my heads, my hand, my mouth work, and I could run my school effectively and the things I couldn't do, other people could do. And five months later, the, the neurologist said, to, you know, we'll think about you going back to school for a couple of hours a week. And I just laughed because I'd been back full-time from three weeks after the operation. Because for me, it was about focusing on what I could do rather than what I couldn't. But I was given an ultimatum in 2004, either stop doing what you're doing or you'll be housebound. And so I took the very difficult decision that I would leave school, but then thought, what am I going to do? I've got all of this skill, all of this expertise. I'm certainly not ready to retire and sit at home. So initially, I took myself off to do a research project across industries to look at what were the issues facing those industries in terms of leadership and the development of leadership? Were they any different to in education? They weren't. And so I wrote my first two books to become my calling card. And until 2009, I worked mainly with corporates always done life coaching alongside, but my, my business work was with corporates. But in January 2009, the recession had hit, and in one week, every one of my contracts had disappeared. For a little while, it was quite bleak. You know, what am I going to do? I built up, you know, the, my business, and in one week, contracts that were going to run from January till October, three big contracts, all just literally disappeared. And there was no thought that these had been postponed. They cut their training and development budget. It just disappeared. I was doing a bit of work for Essex University Business School as a, as a visiting lecturer. And they would commission me out to different businesses. And so what would happen is I'd go in to troubleshoot or do a bit of training. And most times I was invited back some weeks or months later to help them sort something else out. And so I started a very different model of business where 
I worked with senior decision makers of different organisations and then always with them, but sometimes with their senior managers, sometimes with the whole staff, depending upon circumstances and need. And I still do that today. And every one of my businesses, I've introduced the same principles and strategies that I use to make my own organisation successful. And every single one that where we worked for 10 months or more became more productive, more profitable, but also had better working relationships with their staff and their staff with staff and better work-life balance for everyone. So I know this stuff works. But I became more and more aware that people were hurting. Half the prescriptions in the UK are for antidepressants, and most people cite work as a major factor in their depression or their anxiety or their, their stress levels. And so I set up Genuinely You. And so I've been working over the last two years to create content for personal and spiritual development and also leadership. And we've just launched the Enlightened Leadership Programme. That, that, that's a fascinating story, first of all, um, Gina. And I've heard it before, but every time Time. It, it it makes you you may feel that you talk with a person that you know you we all think we go through difficult times but you really must have had to pick yourself up at a very difficult times when you you hit the conclusion that you know you you are in in a wheelchair and you are don't have the same abilities as you have before we take these things for granted talking about the period we're in now there's there's a lots of things we take for granted and when it's taken away it really hurts and then bouncing back from that it takes incredible power and energy. Really, really admire that. I just wanted to, to say that. But again, what's very interesting is that you use that situation to build the the principles and advice on how you work with businesses. And I guess that's the, your enlightened leadership program you are referring to here as well. You said it's created a lot of great results. Can you can you tell us a bit about what this program is about and the principles it's built on and some of the results you've seen over the years working with uh, organizations? If I say that the enlightened leadership program has only just been launched, launched launched immediately before the coronavirus. So, But that's a distillation of all of the strategies and principles and been put into a package that for any business owner will enable them to become enlightened leaders. And it works on the principle very much that you, in order to lead others, you have to lead yourself first. So it differs hugely from most leadership programs. And the research shows that most leadership programs, six months after people have been on them, they're only using between seven and 10% of what they've learned. And the reason for that is it's not changed them. So it's the equivalent of putting a sticking plaster on a boil. Because you are the common denominator that you take into every situation, aren't you? If you don't actively change your habits and 95% of our thinking and of our language and our actions are habitual, they don't cross our conscious minds at all. So unless you change that thinking, those beliefs, those behaviors, you're going to revert to those very quickly. And that's one of the reasons why the program is 10 months long. Because what I've noticed working with companies is that's the golden time. That's when you know everything comes together and it has become second nature to those who are using these techniques and principles. And it really takes that time to embed them and for you to experience a number of challenges so that you can try them out. You know, the neuroscience says it takes 28 days to create a new neural pathway, which is true. The challenge, of course, is as soon as we go into a stress situation, we revert back to where we are most comfortable. And if that 
new way of being isn't really embedded, then it's very easy for us to find that we are going back to old habits. So let me give you some examples of how the principles work. So for example, one of my, and I've got a wide range of clientele, including hotel and also a garden that has a restaurant. But one of my my clients, they've got a dental lab, they make teeth. And when I first started working with them, they made half a million pounds worth of teeth. So that's not dentures, this is crowns and implants. The owner who also works in the business run ragged, overworked. They all regularly went in at seven in the morning. He was often in at six. They worked till seven, eight, sometimes 10 o'clock at night. Everybody worked in a silo. So everybody had their job and they were paid peacetime. And when I started working with this business owner, he was frazzled. He wasn't enjoying the work. He was overwhelmed by the fact that he couldn't work on his business because he was so busy working in his business. And over the time, what we looked at was that he would blame his staff because they would never leave him alone. Is this all right? Is that good enough? And just one of the strategies was as a leader, if there's an issue, you have to look to yourself first. And so what we looked at is that his pattern was that he liked to control, he he micromanaged. And because they were never clear about exactly what he expected in terms of standards, they were always checking in with him. So if you look at the business now and their last year's accounts, that's last August, so we're almost near to this year's accounts, £897,000 worth of teeth. They go in for eight o'clock at the earliest. They're never later than six, most evenings 5.30. On Friday afternoon, most weeks, they finish at three. All of the staff are paid on salary and they have learnt to have a development and learning culture. They work as a team. Thursdays is development day. And on Thursday, everybody's job is to learn and to teach. Even the most lowly position in terms of skill, they have a a role to play in terms of sharing. The difference in terms of atmosphere, productivity, job satisfaction is huge. And that came because the leader changed the way in which they worked. They started to take responsibility when things are going wrong. What is it that I need to do? Do I need to be clearer? Do I need to teach people to have confidence in judging their the quality of their own work? How can we work together to to share the expertise? Because it used to be if somebody was away, there was a problem because part of the, the work chain was missing. I had a, a boss once that said to me, Michael, it starts and ends with you all the time. If the similar, you said, if uh, he used a bit more abrupt word, if there's shit somewhere, it's your shit. It's not somebody else's shit. And again, it's that thing about, you know, looking at yourself and have you actually done the right thing? And, and you, you can have the wrong employee on board, but then it's your job to deal with that situation, not complain about you have the wrong employee on board. So either you, you get them up to the standards you want or living the values you want to see if you can't do that then you just you know you have a responsibility to take that person off the bus so you don't demotivate the rest and uh, you know that's the tough call you always stand last and first no matter what that comes i think you put it very well you know and this i think especially in these times where you know your frustration could go really high i felt in myself where i really have to you know spend a lot of my time during the day as well you know really make sure my energy and my clarity is at the right level all the time and actually spend more time on that, you know, physical activities or go out in nature or eating well, drinking water than I do on spending out thinking about strategy. Because I know if I'm in the right 
place from an energy point of view, when something hits me, I'll react very different than I would if I'm burned out and tired and frustrated. And, and it's hard. It's not easy. It sounds easy to say, but very difficult. So yeah, very good point. You, you mentioned you work with a hotel as well. Could you tell that story as well? Because it is the Hospitality Maverick podcast. And I think some people said, oh, she mentioned a hotel. So what happened in that hotel, if you're allowed to tell, of course, and uh, what was the learnings? If you go back to the fact that I was commissioned by Essex University to go and work with all organizations. In fact, this was the first organization I was sent to. And I was sent to do a a half day course with the directors on communication. The directors had just taken over from their father, brother and sisters. And the hotel was in eight million pounds worth of debt. It was run down. If you went in during the week, it was empty during the day. In the evening, they had quite a lot of commercial people staying. Weekends when there was a wedding, the hotel was quite busy, but they didn't have many weddings. And the hotel was losing money. I didn't know that at the time. I just went in and we started talking about communications. And I always ask before I go and I start, just tell me some of the background. What is it you want? My stuff is not formulaic. I don't take stuff off the shelf and say, you fit me. I want to fit my clients. And it became evident that actually communication was not what they needed. Before they did anything with their staff, they had to really look at the staff. And it turned out that the general manager was actually fleecing them and being being dishonest and so they needed to sort the staff out rather than find a way of of just communicating with them and so after about an hour of working with them and more and more was coming out I stopped the session and said look I can carry on but I don't think that's what you need my concern is that there's some real fundamental issues here and my suggestion is that I work with you anyway they decided they'd think about it and I was invited back some weeks later and there's been another crisis and again I said you know I think there's some fundamental stuff here that could be avoided. So I started working with the directors on a monthly basis. And the first thing that we had to do is that they'd had they had no assigned roles. Nobody knew what they were doing. One of the directors seemed to be carrying the brunt of everything and was very resentful of that. The whole place was just dysfunctional. And so we started off by defining their roles, looked at their expertise, defined their roles, and then defined their vision. Because if you haven't got a vision for what you want, and why that's important, then you never know if you're going to be on track. We then looked at the staffing and we restructured the staffing and the general manager was given the push. And we started to look at what were the key people that they needed in the hotel. We also looked strategically, this hotel is a huge resource and it's empty. So you've got to offer things that people want. And so we did a strategic day with all of the staff, identifying all of the potential activities that could be done. And then we worked backwards because what they would do so imagine Christmas in a hotel, busy time, we would think. They didn't start preparing their advertising until October. It's too late. And so we started by creating the whole of the next year's programme of the key events and then worked back. When do you need to have your advertising in place? Well, if the advertising needs to go to the printer or the banner needs to be printed or whatever, let's say on the 1st of June, then you need to start planning that in January so that you've got all of your copy ready, it can be proofread and and everything can be in place. And so we started creating with them. It was not just about the strategic plan, but we created with them a way of planning strategically. Now the hotel, it's won awards. If you go there anytime, not this precise moment, I have to say, any 
any time of the day or night, that is busy. The last time before the coronavirus, they were running at something like 79% occupancy for their bedrooms. For example, they wanted um, more people in. So to start with, they used Groupon for afternoon teas. But they gathered the data when people came. Now they don't do anything through anybody else. They send out their own offers and they've got a database of about 15,000 people and they can fill their afternoon tea pretty well from their own database. The whole thing has shifted instead of being reactive and if people come along then well, we'll serve them. They're proactive. They're known in the community. They go out to firms who are within the area. So they offer next Christmas's Christmas do at this year's Christmas do and they start doing Christmas dinners on the last week of November and last year they they were something like 60% sold out by the end of January and that's all because they have been systematic and they have been creative and they have been very proactive but what many organizations do and I I work with another organization that's got a restaurant it's so easy to just be reactive because it's a busy job it's long hours and it's so easy to get into the habit of thinking well I'll do that later whereas if you're strategic about it even about ordering for example if you're strategic about it you can save yourself a lot of money a lot of time and a lot of energy and you'll know in the hospitality industry that all three are in short supply so the more strategic you are the more well planned you are the more you can get your bookings ahead of time and know what's coming the better if we take it into um what you talk about, you know, the leader in the center of thing and, and acting and, and being the leader that you want to want to see or want to be managed by yourself. We take that into pandemic terms. We are probably now out of the shock. There's a lot of companies that has been through some very difficult weeks trying to figure everything out, you know, from furloughing and so on. And now people are sitting and now we're already talking about how do we bring back business and how do we reopen Britain and uh, reopen uh, things so we can, you know, get back to some people say normal. And, you know, most people I talk with know this is the new normal or the new now they talk about. And I guess we're going to be living in this period of massive uncertainty for, you know, I don't know how long it's going to be. Definitely till we have a some kind of vaccine that can take care of this situation because there's, there's, there's no cure. It's still there. There will be months of the year where sometimes where we will have other lockdowns. And that's a bit brutal, but I think that's what's going to happen. Or we will be very controlled about how many people that can be in squares, in offices, places like that to keep it away for the next 18 months to three years. So what is your perspective when it comes to leadership and how to deal with that? Because yes, you're just crisis managed, but now you're in a new crisis in a way. It's a it's a longer adaption you need to do because you can't do what you did before. Everything has changed. Just before I answer that, can I just say that in, within five years, that hotel had one million pounds worth of debt, not eight, and they had refurbished every bedroom, 79 bedrooms, all of the public rooms, you know, it is possible to turn things around. But in this sort of situation, we are in uncharted waters. I think there are certain principles that are absolutely crucial. Firstly, leaders have to show that there is hope. They have to demonstrate to their, not only their staff, but their clients, that there is a future. Because when everybody is on the back foot, 
people will gravitate towards those beacons of hope. And I'm not talking about blind optimism. There's a huge difference between blind optimism, which for me is the equivalent of being an ostrich. It's all going to be all right. Don't need to do anything. It'll be fine. It'll just go away. Nor do you want to be a pessimist. It's all gloom and doom and oh, why me? And I'm a victim. So for me, it's about Leaders need to be optimistic. They need to, even if they're inside, they are frightened and they are struggling. They need to present to their staff and their clients, we will find a way. You know, I've done a lot of research about very successful people. And the thing that makes them most successful is not that they are supermen or women, but they are very clear that they will succeed. They don't necessarily know how, but they are clear that they will find a way to succeed. And because they come from that resourced place, they are then able to be more creative. What I would say to you, if you're, this is your company, you're the senior decision maker, think about how you might utilize the skill, expertise, creativity, enthusiasm of your staff and recognize that this is not a time to do stuff alone. This is a time to engage with people and have those conversations. And you know, I was having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with, with a guy. He's a chef in a local restaurant. He's not the boss. He, he's a senior, the top chef, but he's got no job. And he sat around for a couple of days. And, and then you know, we were talking. Out of that conversation, he's now set up a business of his own. And his business is that he three times a week delivers meals to people who are interested. So in the interim day, he's, he cooks, but it gives people a real change from their own cooking. And he's able to work with his suppliers. They're now prepared to supply to him and he's cooking from home. He's not doing lots of choice. This is the meal. If you want it, order it. If not, don't. It's a two course meal. And he then delivers that within a, a, a 10 to 15 mile radius. And he started off with 20 people. I think he's up to a lot bigger now. And he's got his uncle now doing the delivery. They don't interrupt the social distance. It's left on the path. Doorbells rung, they disappear. But he's also doing celebration meals. So the one he talked to me about a few days ago was it was a family's father's 90th birthday and he lived on his own and they weren't able to be with him. So as a surprise, my client delivered a three-course meal and a cake to him as a surprise on his birthday. So here is someone who's using their skills in a very different way. And he has created for himself a business, which I have no doubt as time goes on, he will be able to develop even further. Another who is a story I can tell you is a chef started a, an on the side business of doing celebration by the meter. And that is meter boards, which have a buffet on them beautifully presented and if there's just four of you you might just want a meter if there's 40 of you you order 10 meters and the recipe if you like of the different components on the board is repeat pattern of the same thing so it's easy to replicate so you know the only thing that's going to limit you is you i absolutely appreciate the bedrooms in the hotel well some hotels are offering those as an overspill for the national health some of them are offering them for key workers but i would say to you you know if you're in the hospital business, not only should you be in contact with your star, but 
have you contacted your customers? Not about sales, but just to say, we realize it's really difficult. We just want to know how you are. We just want you to know we're thinking of you. Now, I think that's going to go a long way when this is all open up. People will want to get away. They'll want to go out and eat. They'll want to do things that are not home-based. Now, who are you going to go to? Are you going to go to an organization that's just ignored you? Or if an organization's kept in touch, and I don't mean daily, but perhaps every three weeks, and said, how are you doing? Who are you going to go and visit? Because again, it's about caring and connection that is the ultimative in a situation like this, you know, because first of all, it's something that's for free, but it's so given when you do that. And remember to connect not only with your employees, but also with your customers, because they are probably some of them in, you know, challenging situations. And, you know, it's, it's lovely to, for once, having a conversation that is uh, maybe a bit more about just a chat than a, a business conversation where you have to solve the problem because that's what it is. It's piles of problems you need to solve. It's so demanding to solve problems. We can all do it, but in the, in the, in the speed we have done it in the moment and we have to, and uh, you know, Monday to Friday as I talk with a um, person I coach in the moment, is uh, she said like, my Monday to Friday, it just feels like I'm doing a month's work at the time. And then Friday comes and I'm like absolutely drained, you know? And, and we talk a lot about this thing about, you know, so just, just allow yourself just to have chats sometimes. You don't have to achieve something you're already doing quite well what you get done in such a situation you know and you have to give yourself a bit of credit and then you know and you get so much energy of just having reaching out to people your customers or whatever it is a friend for that sake and and show that you care because everybody no matter where they are in the world has some kind of difficult period i do think self-care is hugely important and not just the eating well and and exercise but you know imagine a, a mug and you drink it it empties very quickly but if you under a, a running tap it would very soon overflow and I think for everyone is how do you ensure that what you're using is your overflow and not emptying your mug so doing things that that fill you up being creative you know just being a bit forgiving and kind to yourself and others I think will make an enormous difference how is this gonna this situation now mothers have given us a wake-up call I call what would that do in organizations you think from your experience in leadership and developing leaders and organizations? I think there's going to be two main types of organizations. There are going to be those that only see the problems and who look for other people to bail them out. And I think they'll fail. And there'll be other organizations that recognize that there's more millionaires made in times of crisis than ever in times of boom, who will look for the opportunities. And I'm not talking about people who are profiteering. I think that's something quite different. But people who search for the opportunities and are going to look to work in a different way. There's going to be a difference between those who are generally office-based, and I think we're never going to go back to people being five days a week in an office I think home working is here to stay. It won't be exclusively home working, but I think many people will not see any purpose in traveling in five days a week on the cattle truck when they can work in a different way. But I think hotels and restaurants, they're going to have to be aware of looking for opportunities. It's interesting in the last recession, hotels and restaurants compared with other industries did quite well because people were prepared to spend on food and entertainment. This is the time to reassess your values. It's a time to reflect on what's important to you. And I think there's going to be a research, or I'd like to think there's going to be a resurgence on relationships, 
family together time on sharing. And I think those hotels and restaurants who recognise that they have a huge part to play in that and that they maybe need to do things a little differently are going to do far better. The organisations who are ready to ask and listen for feedback from their customers and be very customer-centric, I think, will do well. Those who look to create an experience and don't just go through the motions, I think they're going to do well. But if you think you can just go back and it's all going to be the same, I suspect you're going to fail. You're going to have to be very proactive and ready to to try new things, to to step outside the box. And and some of them will fail and some of them will succeed. But, you know, Dyson made 1,999 prototypes before he got a Hoover to work. And if you're fearful of failure, then the danger is that you won't learn. So for me, the only failure is the failure to try and the failure to learn from the experience. But to do that within the parameters of making it as safe as you can, particularly financially. And I think people sometimes leave it too late to make the difficult decisions because they don't want to upset anybody. And I think you're going to find a leaner, meaner structure in terms of staffing. But it's all going to be about your people. And for me, it's about how do you train your people? How do you nurture them? There's already a national shortage of of good chefs, isn't there? And yet I know from talking to the chefs in the two organisations that have got kitchens is that the reason they like working in the two organisations I work with is because they're treated well, that they feel respected. It's just as important for your pot washer or for your night porter to feel valued as it is for your top chef and your senior manager. And that all comes from the very top. I agree. And it, uh, it runs down. It can be like gold and or it can be like acid. Depends on what you send down. And again, it starts with you, as you said in the beginning. Do you think consumers are going to be very aware about how businesses conduct themselves now, and the principles they operate for, and they will vote with their consumer pounds or dollars when they spend? I sense a sea change. You know, I think people listening to how the environment is recovering because of our changed behaviour, I think will be a wake-up call for many. And one of the good things, and there have been some good things that have come out of this crisis, has been that I think people are much, not everybody, but a much bigger proportion of society has recognised how important it is to be kind and to say thank you. I mean, I don't know if you were out at eight o'clock last night. You know, isn't it interesting? that a few weeks ago, if you were a porter in a hospital, you had no social standing in society at all. If you were a footballer or a celebrity, you had high status. But now I think we've had a a recalibration of what's important. And I'm hopeful that that will continue after the virus is over or after the crisis in terms of dealing with the virus is over. And that people will, will recognize that actually it is important to be kind and forgiving. It is important to have high standards I'm not suggesting that you should get rid of those for a moment but actually many organizations run for them not for their customers and I think they will vote with their feet and their purse and wallet and if they don't feel as if they're important and that they're valued then they'll go elsewhere. I live locally in Brighton and I've seen a massive search to local butchers greengrocers and I talk with my local greengrocers which I've used before then and then we we often have a chat and he said yesterday it's never been busier for 20 years he said i thought we were going to go out of business if we can continue this we will be thriving for decades 
this has gone on long enough for people to recognise that actually if we don't look after the greengrocer and, and the butcher and the baker, should this ever happen again, then we're going to be back to only having the, the, the big supermarkets. I live just outside Colchester. It's six miles for me to get to my nearest supermarket. And so people will finally recognise the value of local. I think we're going to go back to local economies and, uh, you know, uh, circular economies, as it's called as well. And you see a big rise in that. And I think especially small businesses would have a, a, a great opportunity in all this. Can I just add a caveat, though? It's no good the small local businesses thinking, yeah, I've got a captive audience. I can behave in a way that is not best practice in terms of the customer. I think that you'll only succeed if you give if you've got an excellent produce and an excellent service. And I would hope that more and more we will be buying British because if we don't, then you know the farmers and the producers are going to stop producing and will be held to ransom by having to import. What about yourself, Gina? How do you um, keep yourself on the balance in all this and make sure your energy level is as good as they can be and be kind to yourself and all that? What, what are your secrets? The biggest thing for me is I have a real sense of service. I believe that my life's work is to support and help other people to feel empowered and to be the best version of them that they can be. Not do it for them, but to just help them along the way. And I was brought up with a very strong work ethic. And you know, when I was down or said I was bored at home, my parents would say to me, go and do something useful and go and do something useful for somebody else. And it's been an interesting principle and one that I've lived my life by. And it's really helpful. The thing I have to be very mindful of is the self-care bit, because I still, although I can now walk short distances, I still do need to use a wheelchair if I go out any distance. And so I have endless intellectual and creative energy, but I don't have a great deal of physical energy. And it's silly things like I've lost my cleaner because of the virus and I've lost my gardener. And I love being out in my garden, but he used to do all of the heavy stuff. So I'm having to pace myself very carefully. Self-care, I think is a big one for me. But I get such a huge amount of pleasure when I when I listen to people who's, who are really struggling and then they find their way and you know they're ready to fly. And I think I've had a little tiny part of that. I don't do it for people. I'm not into a dependency model, but I, I can help people shift their perspective and, and shift their way of thinking to something that enables them to move forward. Then for me, that's such a, a, a joy. At the end of the podcast, we always ask the guests to give like uh, some top advice to leaders. It could be people out there trying to to find their new way. What would your top three advice be to say to people right now? These are the three things in your world you have to focus on to move forward. Okay, I'd focus on what you can do and what resources you have available to you. And that's resources in terms of staff, but also your your own inner resources, your experience, people that you know who have experience that you can draw upon. And so what are the resources available? And focus very, very much on, I can do this, because that makes a huge difference, number one. Number two is I would be really strategic, as I say, plan for the worst, plan for the best, and milestone 
stones in between. And don't wait until you are forced into making difficult decisions because you have no other option. Because the chances are, if you're forced into it rather than it being a strategic decision, that there will have been huge damage done. And the third thing is that say, you're not alone. There are people who can help you, people like me, but also collaborate. You're in an industry that's fairly close knit and nobody is isolated in the sense that you you know a lot of the problems that you're facing many of your colleagues are facing too so you know radio shows like this are a help but you know who are the groups of people that you currently belong to I don't mean that you go in there and it's a pity party quite the opposite but going in and saying right what can we do together how can we collectively work together to collaborate to be stronger than we are individually and look for those opportunities and I think that by doing that being creative about that that you will be in a strong position when we are able to come out of lockdown great great some great advice there gina gina thank you so much for coming on the the podcast sharing your story your view on leadership and how to navigate the pandemic and how you think things are gonna change afterwards where can people find you if they want to know more i'm on linkedin if you look for gina gardner and gina gardner associates which is the first business i'm on facebook with genuinely you but probably the two best places to go are the websites so genuinely hyphen and the word you.com, that's genuinely hyphen you.com is the, the overall website. But if you're interested in using this time to really hone your leadership skills, I'd really recommend, you know, people look at the Enlightened Leadership Program and you'll find lots of information on there on enlightenedleadership.co. So that's enlightenedleadership.co. There's a free blueprint you can download. You can arrange a discovery call with me at no cost. Why not utilize this time to really, we were talking about sharpening the saw, weren't we, before? You know, use this time to actually you know, deepen and strengthen your leadership skills because it pay off hugely by doing that. And the program works both on developing you as the person and you as the leader. Gina, you take care and stay safe out there and uh, hear from Hospitality Mavericks, energy, power and, and love for, for your journey ahead. And uh, I'm sure that you will be contributing to a lot of good stuff and people that need it in these times. So, so thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Gina, thank you so much for your great energy and amazing wisdom on how to become more productive person and leader. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share, rate, or subscribe to one of our channels. If the subject around leadership and compassion interests you, I will recommend you also to tune in to our previous episodes. Episode 39, Helping to Find Your Inner Purpose with Mark Pitcher. Episode 40, Organization and Individual Happiness with Lars Koryu. Thanks to Let's Talk Radio Production for your support on these podcasts. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to our newsletter at hospitalitymavericks.com. Thanks for listening and be merry.